Welcome to my den. Way back in March of 2022 on episode 14, I had my good friend Deb Nup on the show. And throughout her episode, she kept mentioning this other woman, Jen Marr, who she said had just given her this entirely different way of thinking about inspiring care and comfort for people who are hurting. So I said, I have got to get Jen on the show and fast forward, here we are one year post launch of the Native Digital Native Analog Show and I am bringing Jen on. So I am so excited for this episode, but here's how this conversation went down. So Deb brought up Jen because her daughter, uh, her oldest daughter, Deb's oldest daughter, had recently attempted suicide, had hurt herself. And when Deb went to the grocery store after this had happened, she ran into a friend who had no clue what to say, right? And the friend, you know, reverted to what's, I think, a typical human response, right? Toxic positivity, rushing to fix the problem, or avoiding or deflecting. And, um... Deb was hurt by it, and her family was going through a really hard time. I mean, what do you do when you run into someone who's been through a tragedy like that? How do you engage with them? How do you support them? And uh, what Jen would say, as you'll hear today, is that this is very common. We get caught up in an awkward zone where we don't know what to do with people around us who are hurting. So today's episode is helping us unpack this important dialogue problem. And Jen does this for organizations. She'll go work with large teams of people teaching them how to have care and comfort and empathy and what to say, like what's helpful and what not to say. This episode, every minute of it is absolute gold. And when you hear Jen's story about how she was involved in the front lines of the aftermath of Sandy Hook, and then just a year later, was running the Boston Marathon in 2013 when the bombs went off. Jen has been on the front lines of tragedy for many years of these you know, recent events in our past, and I can't wait for you to hear how she has used that and what she's learned from those experiences as an inspiration to help the world with our empathy challenges. Jen wrote a book or released a book after we recorded this episode. So I have to mention it. It is called Showing Up. I will drop the link in the comments. Go check it out. She co-authored it and it is just fantastic. So practical, helping us navigate this awkward zone and all the challenges that arise with it. I cannot believe we have just hit a year of this podcast, so I would love to meet each and every one of you. I am so grateful for not just your time that you spent listening and learning from this show, but also the encouraging notes and texts and emails that you have sent uh, just with the details of the changes you're making in your organizations, the, the light that you are shining based on what you're hearing on this episode, and I'm just so grateful for each and every one of you and what you've given back to me, how much I've learned from you through this conversation and the dialogue that it started. So thank you for supporting bringing the Native Digital and Native Analog perspectives together so we can create just a better future for everyone. I will not leave us hanging any further. So without further ado, buckle up your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that and join me in my living room with the amazing Jen Marr. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Okay. 
Okay, Jen, I have a sort of interesting question to kick us off before we get to know you, because I, I want to get to know you better too <laughs> through through the show. Uh, but I, this really piqued my interest. You posted on LinkedIn, I, I guess it's been a couple weeks now, basically putting out there this idea that the whole concept we're all familiar with of you know, you put your mask on first before helping others. It, you know, we, we all kind of think of that as a social norm. But you basically said um, you you either disagree with that statement or it, it just doesn't seem to to land with in alignment with the work that you're doing. So t- tell me more about that. Oh, my gosh. It's reimagining the oxygen mask theory. Um, and I, I'm glad you like that post because, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. And when I started the work I was doing, you know, when I was out in the field, really working with people that were struggling, um, I believed in that theory, the oxygen mask theory, which basically is, you know, if you're in an emergency, put your mask on first so you can help a child, right? And obviously, self-care is a really big deal. We need to take care of ourselves. So, of course, you know, we should think that way. What I've noticed, though, over the course of the last six to eight years, though, is that self-care has become such a big buzzword that I am seeing it being used sometimes as a crutch. Um, And we are looking inward more than we're looking outward. Um, And what happens is, is if we fail to look outward, um, and when we always do self-care first, um, we're lacking in the connections that we need. There's there's a couple things to, to look at here. Number one, Somebody has to be the child, right? In the airplane scenario, you're supposed to put the mask on the child because the child isn't capable of doing it themselves, right? In real life, not everyone is a child. And there is always someone who needs help. And so we therefore can't assume that um, we're just going through life that this person that is supposed to be a child um, is waiting for you to put their oxygen mask on. They need you to help them before you can help yourself because there are some times that you are better equipped than they are themselves. And maybe sometimes self-care takes a backseat. I've seen self-care being used as a crutch and I've also seen people that are healed by helping others. I've seen how by you reaching out to someone else instead of focusing on yourself, you actually engage the oxytocin in your system, which is the very thing that is needed to overpower the cortisol, which is the stress in your system. So the reason I challenged it, I'm not saying it's wrong because there certainly are times that self-care is essential. However, even Harvard has come out with a recent article saying, stop framing self-care as wellness or wellness as self-care because we need to be looking at human suffering as a collective, that it is up to all of us to help each other through. And sometimes if you look at self-care as the wellness event of choice, um, HBR will go as far as saying it's a subtle form of abandonment. Like it's up to you to fix that. I'm, I'm not involved. You can deal with that yourself. And so it frames the larger question I think we're going to have, Hannah, which is there's three basic forms of care we need to talk about. Um, there is the professional mental health care. Um, and we're talking about, you know, human suffering, mental health care now, not getting into the physical realm. Um, we have the mental health professionals, the licensed clinical social workers, the therapists, the counselors. They're wonderful. They're fabulous. They're great. Consider they're on the left side. On the far right side, we will have self-care where we really do need to learn how to regulate our emotions, how to practice breathing techniques if we're stressed how to recognize um, when we need some time for ourselves. That is also critical. However, if the middle of that is not bridged, if we only go back and forth between self-care and professional care, we're not operating as our bodies are wired, and that is supportive care. Um, the, The support from friends and colleagues, your tribe, your squad, your family, your friends. Um, And because there's been such a huge focus on both the professional end and the self-care end, this bridge of supportive care has really been crumbling and to the point where people 
are not 100% sure how to provide that. And we can get into that. I absolutely love that we're having this conversation, Jen, because I've never heard it described almost as a, a spectrum. And that visual was so helpful for, for me to visualize as you were describing it. It's It seems like both ends of the spectrum are a very self, almost like a, a it, they're very single, individually minded, narcissistic sort of solutions to the problem of, you know, the fact the fact that we're all looking to be the healthiest versions of ourselves. And what if I understand what you're describing, it's like there's this middle section that largely gets forgotten. And I can attest to this as a Gen Zer, probably is is completely proliferated by social media and the fact that there's so much individual focus, we miss this this community. And I'm so excited to to dive into that um, in, in our conversation. But before we go there, um, I, I want to pose this idea to you and also get to know your story some better. I did an episode, this was a, a solo cast a couple of months ago, that was this idea of, I call it therapy culture, like basically what Gen Zers are dealing with now. And given the visual you just described, it's very much focused on that left side of the spectrum of professional care. But basically, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Myself and my husband, I had him join me for the episode just to kind of banter between two Gen Zers about what we're seeing online. But there seems to be this trend where Gen Zers will look to a Band-Aid solution for mental health in the form of a therapy service. So there's all these apps coming out about, you know, you can have a a quick 30-minute consultation with a therapist or licensed therapist, or you can go and have multiple sessions with a therapist. But something I've observed is it's almost, to use your word, crutch. It's almost become this crutch for Gen Zers to start relying on therapists for what that community should be providing their friends, their family, their support system. So it's almost like the trend toward mental health has gone so far that therapists are replacing trusted friends for things that, in in my opinion, shouldn't be considered medical, uh, like a, a true medical diagnosis for some serious mental health condition. So it's things like, you know, a Gen Zer will look to therapy as an ongoing sort of subscription rather than to deal with a, a condition, a problem, or a trauma that a therapist should be helping them exit from if they're, right, a good therapist who's helping them through that challenge and helping give them tools to deal with it. So I, I really wanted to get your thoughts on this and what you're seeing with students and with Gen Zers, because in my mind, this is such a it's almost like a, a pandemic of sorts in and of itself, <laughs> where it's it's gone so far that we're reaching to methods that, uh, it, you know, from reading your research, don't seem to be as effective as this middle ground, this bridge of supportive care. Mm-hmm. So much to talk about on that. Well, I'll start by talking about students. Um, I just basically um, finished off two weeks of a lot of campus programming where we assess and survey students on campus, students are not willing, not, I don't want to say willing, they're not as eager to go for counseling. On campus, they want peer support because I think there's this fear that if they talk about their mental health on campus, it could somehow impact their records or whatever. So there's um, on campus, when we survey them, um, peer support falls far above um, having counseling on campus. Uh, what is the number one thing they want, by the way, is professors and staff that care. Crazy. It surprised me. Anyway, so I think what happens with students is they're so focused on getting through college. Um, uh, they want each other for support more than they want the counseling center, but most of all, they want their professors to care. Um, that's students. Once you get outside of the campus environment and you are out in the workplace, you're 100% right. And I think what we found um, and are definitely finding is over the past couple decades, there has been um, this focus on these two realms we talked about, the professional end and the self-care end. And it's almost as if um, we ourselves go back and forth in our heads. Well, if I can't handle this myself, I need to go see a therapist. And then if I, you know, when I'm, after I see the therapist, I go and I self-care. And honestly, that is 
growing the mental health crisis because what happens is we stay in our heads. There's a few things that um, I thought of as you were talking. First of all, um, there is a therapist that's quoted in my book, H. Norman Wright, who said, um, he's been a therapist for many, many years. And even before the pandemic or anything, he estimated that up to 40% of people that went to see him wouldn't have needed to see him if they had a knowledgeable friend that know how to care. If you talk to crisis lines, people don't call to get advice. They're calling just for someone to listen a lot of times, right? So we know that, as you said, the professional end of mental health care is used a lot of times in a crutch because they don't know where else to land. As you also may know, um, John Draper, who's running the 988 line now, which is the mental health hotline, wrote the foreword to both of my books. Um, and he is so passionate about this middle section of supportive care because it is the realm in which we live. Like if you think of a counselor, at best you're with them four hours a month, at best, probably two hours a month, right? What then, right? We know our body is wired relationally. We also know, and this is what John Draper will say, is a therapist can't say, I love you. A therapist can't say, I need you. A therapist can't say, you're so important in my life, right? Those are the things that fuel us. A, a therapist and a, a counselor is going to give you strategies as to how to go out there and live. But if we don't have that tribe of people, that squad, that support, that family, that safety net, that's going to be there to decompress after talking to a counselor or to lift us up after we've, you know, had to go to yoga because we're so stressed out, right? We live in that supportive care network. And basically that is the area now that everybody's talking about, you know, social connectedness. We have to be more socially connected because it's how our body's wired. Um, and so just that is where everything has to head right now. So that's why it's so critical we're having this conversation. I want to highlight something you just said because I, I want to make sure I got this correct. So your your belief is that we're actually growing the mental health crisis by this focus of bouncing between that left and right side of the spectrum and ignoring the middle. That's I want to make sure I capture what you said correctly because that that's mind blowing. If that's the case, it goes against all of the conversations that are happening literally everywhere on social media about the importance of self-care and professional care. So yeah. is that is that what you're saying is growing the mental health crisis? Well, I, w I don't want to go on the record saying that's what's growing the mental health crisis, but it certainly isn't helping it, right? Because we, we the mental health crisis is growing, as are the number of counselors. And look, both of those realms are good, right? I'm not here to say either of them are bad, but let's talk about the middle for a second. And this is what our data will, will play out. And then you tell me if it's not being exasperated by the way that we're focusing on this, right? So when we go into any workplace, any college, any, um, any setting we work with, um, we do an anonymous survey, pre-survey before we meet with them. And we also do a, a personal um, human care behavior assessment. So one of them, they get their data back on, which is their caring behaviors. Um, the other one, we don't collect their data, so it's anonymous. Uh, and so what plays out is this. The number one area where people will say that they're good at caring for people, and this is true, they will say over 80%, I can see you when you struggle. People will rate themselves highly empathic, right? They care. And this is when I started this, um, as you may know, I, I spent five years in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook School shooting spending time every week in that school, working with parents, teachers, um, students. And I saw how people on the outside cared, right? They deeply cared. Who didn't care? The issue is those people in that school didn't feel seen. Why? Because everybody was sending stuff, right? Like 67,000 teddy bears were sent to this town. It didn't help the people, all right? So getting back to this area of supportive care, people cared but didn't know how to apply their emotions. Um, on the other hand, when we do the anonymous survey, where do you feel least seen? 
always number one. And this is like 80% of people across the board, regardless of demographic, age, setting, 77 to 80% of people will say, no one sees me when I struggle, right? So we have this gap. We have this gap where the majority of people have empathy. They care. Like they're going to go to their therapist and their therapist is going to teach them to care. They want to care, but yet no one feels seen. So I can see you, but no one sees me. So there's this gap in the middle of people not knowing what to say and do. It's this awkwardness of not knowing, of fear and doubt and um, awkwardness. And so basically what we've found is that a lot of people will say, if you're feeling these emotions of empathy, compassion, um, and sympathy, right? Let's just name the emotions of care, empathy, sympathy, compassion, and then you have apathy over there, which we can talk about later. I see a lot on social media that says, it's a debate, like, is it more important to have empathy or compassion? And, and ultimately, if you have those emotions, it's going to reach the person that's needing care. That's simply not true. What happens is when you have these emotions of empathy and compassion, you can feel great about something, but you have to take in the factors of the opposing emotion. No matter how much empathy you have, you're going to have doubt. No matter how much compassion you have, you're going to fear you're doing the wrong thing. And so over the course of the last 10 years on the field and the research I've done, you know, we've identified this gap. We call it the awkward zone. And it's filled with second guessing, with people having no idea what to say and do, afraid that they're going to offend someone, afraid they're going to say the wrong thing, afraid that, that it's going to ruin a relationship or make the person more sad, um, worried about being canceled for saying the wrong thing, for sensitivity to different cultures. And so we have this gap of actions. So we have to teach the social skills on top of the emotional skills to reach the person needing care. So I know I just said a lot there, um, but it, it is a lot. And, it, and there are these layers that we have to understand as to why the supportive care area is, is not developed right now. This is mind-blowing sort of <laughs> conversation because you're right. No one is, no one's talking about this. And I, it struck me when we first talked how you said your team has done the very first study, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the very first study on compassion and in, you call it inspiring comfort, right? Or or base, basically helping people to live in this supportive zone and help each other. Like it, it blew my mind the first time we talked that you guys are doing the first study that's focused in this area. And get, give me, tell me what the, the words are. Again, I don't want to mis, misquote <laughs> you. So what, what is the, what is, what is the very first study that you're, you guys have done the very first study in? Well, yeah, I, let me just clarify. So we um, completed a study with the New York office of mental health through the New York suicide prevention center partnering with Montclair State University, basically on a compassionate intervention with pro-social behaviors, okay? So it's an intervention. So basically the way that the study was done is going way upstream, right? We don't always want to have the um, suicide prevention in the crisis world, right? We So they're looking for interventions that go far upstream. And when they look upstream, what they're looking at is making sure people have a connected network, people that um, have people in their lives that care. And so again, what was so interesting on this, Hannah, and I have to be completely transparent here, I didn't go into this study saying, hey, we're gonna we're doing a compassionate and pro-social behavior intervention, right? I basically went into this with what I do, which is I know that people need to be connected with caring actions and um, they need to be required to connect we have to stay away from this um, just emotional conversation. Um, and so that's what I was teaching. When we did the program, every session, they're required to reach out to someone that needs care. It's just part of it. So when the whole thing was written up by um, Montclair State University with Taylor Walls, and I was reading through this language, I, I said to her, I said, you know, Taylor, you, you have in there a compassionate, compassionate and pro-social behavior intervention. I said, can then we say definitively that that is the line between emotional and social 
intelligence, emotional behaviors, and social behaviors. And I mean, Taylor's brilliant, such a smart woman. And she even said, you know, it's interesting right now in, um, in this space of mental health, we're blurring the two, but this is something that we definitely need to focus on. Like to me, compassionate intervention, not compassionate, that's your emotion. Pro-social behaviors, that's your required actions. That's your social intelligence. And we have to be looking at them separately. And so it's kind of created a lot of conversation within us. Um, and I've been asked to present this research at the first Suicide Prevention Upstream Conference um, in September. Um, and really looking at this criticalness of developing social skills on top of the emotion. But to go back to what you said, um, yeah, Taylor Wells will say that to the best of their knowledge, it was the first study of its kind looking at the impact of a compassionate and pro-social behavior intervention against um, loneliness and suicidal behaviors in youth. Okay, so you got to look at that other one as well. But even so, like, come on, that's crazy. Right? Um, <laughs> crazy is the first study. I think that so much of it has always just been on emotions. My personal take on it. I want to get deeper into that data specifically and looking at you know, what, how we as humans can move toward each other and some of what you teach. But I have to know, how did you get into this and why? I mean, clearly, this is, this is clearly like, if I could say, I know what someone talks like and sounds like when they are literally fulfilling every single thing that they, they, they thought they could add to the world, like you're an embodiment of that. And it's so inspiring just because it's clear that your work is like so aligned with your values. So, but how did, how did you get into this work? Well, it's, I think it could only have happened with my background and circumstances. I will tell you that because when you get into the mental health world, you get into a world that is very, very siloed, right? Um, I work very closely with Dr. David Desteno out of Northeastern University, and he's a professor, a psychology professor, really, really on um, the emotions of gratitude, um, empathy, and compassion, and a few of these other things. But even within that realm, there's only, there's certain areas that he's not the expert on. Um, as an example, I was working with him on one end of it, and I, I was asking him, questions on another aspect of, you know, what stops us from having empathy. And then he's like, oh, I think this other professor would be good for you to talk to. Okay. So anyway, brilliant, brilliant man. I've loved working with him. But knowing how siloed the mental health world is, and you have researchers and thought leaders that really, really zero in on a very narrow area of focus. Um, that's kind of what's going on in mental health. My background is very, very different. I grew up in, a, in the business world. I was a business development executive. I lived overseas. I worked in the healthcare industry. Um, I, you know, everything I've done, I am an entrepreneur at heart. Everything I've done has started with a blank piece of paper, whether that has been my first job out of college, starting a couple of businesses. Um, so it's just how my mind works. Um, so when I was taking a break, I had a career break to raise my three daughters, uh, I was in the neighboring town of Sandy Hook when that tragic shooting happened um, and became involved with offering support um, in the school. Uh, over the course of the next five years, I was in there every week. Um, but four months after Sandy Hook, I was a half mile away from the finish line of the Boston Marathon when the bombs went off. And it was two, between those two tragedies so close together that I was so involved in, it was crazy. Um, that over the course of the next year, as I was sorting through it all, I really began to see this gap, um, this gap where people, number one, just didn't feel cared for. But number two, you're surrounded by people that do care. Um, but sometimes the actions, you know, when we're out there, the two things that really struck me being on the ground after tragedy was number one, the focus on random acts of kindness programs, which just by very definition is random. You're not teaching people how to connect with each other. You're sending teddy bears and things and sometimes making the person feel better about themselves for doing something than actually connecting with the one suffering. Or secondly, the kinds of grounds on the uh, training on the ground were um, much more based on emotions and not tangible at all. Um, kind of elusive training. You're like, okay, I know like, 
um, teaching people empathy and compassion. And again, these are concepts that are critical, but I was witnessing most people have it. <laughs> and I think our data plays out. I do believe that, you know, really about 20% of people out there maybe have apathy. And that might grow a little based on circumstances. Probably more people now because they're stressed out will say, you know, I don't have time to help someone. But that's what was happening on the ground. And so my business development brain kicked in. And I said, there has to be a better way. And what is happening? So we just started with some programs after school and these trauma-based schools and settings um, that would literally just bring people together and teach them how to go out and care for others. Because I'll tell you what was happening. I felt like I was on the ground helping them in the moment um, to bring care and comfort, but then I left. And I was at Sandy Hook every week for five years. And I could see the long-term needs of a, of a tragedy or of trauma. But that was the background to weekly crisis deployments, whether it was a suicide or a drug overdose, where the crisis response is 72 hours. And then people will say, okay, move on. Um, but students don't know how to move on when there's an empty desk in their classroom. And nobody's prepared them for that. And as I was watching these students, I would see their phone in their hands with absolutely no idea what to say. Um, there was one particular moment and that was like, that's it, I'm done, I've got to do something on this. And it was um, a, a crisis response setting in a high school where um, there actually had been three deaths over the weekend, but I was with students who had lost, their best friend lost their brother. So the best friend was home and these students were all together talking. And the poor friend at home was sitting there wanting his, their friends to reach out, but not one friend in this group had reached out yet because the conversation went something like this, you know, have you reached out yet? No, I don't know. I don't, he probably just wants to be with his family. Yeah, I know. Oh gosh, I don't know what it's going to be like for him to come back to school. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think he probably doesn't want to hear from us yet, you know? And I sat there and, and I never, I wasn't a counselor, so, and I rarely interjected, but just the mom in me was like, no. And I just reached in. And I said, guys, send him a text. Just send him a text. Tell him you're they're thinking about him and you love him and you'll always be there for him. And then do it again tomorrow. It's all you have to do. And they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and at that moment, I knew, I knew that more had to be done. Like we cannot keep on this trajectory. I and I could listen to you tell stories like that for hours because it, it I I personally have lost people to suicide and I actually had um Jen I almost said your name again Deb Nup you guys both have wonderful one one syllable names there <laughs> so I know I know you know Deb and she was on the show a few months ago when we were talking about in both of our families having you know, in my case, it's my sister who has been in and out of, you know, whether it's she was she was in the hospital for, you know, not a suicide attempt, thank God, but a um, suicidal thoughts, et cetera. Like we, we all it, it seems like our country, like everyone knows someone or knows of someone or is intimately dealing with some something that could be a crisis that is that enormous, like having a sister or a, a daughter or a child who is suicidal. Or it could be something a whole lot more minor, right? Like every every crisis looks so different, and um, and yet you're right. Like we we're at a loss as to what to say or how to approach that friend. And and I'm really curious in you know with that story, it was students who I would assume you tell me if this is the case, but it seems like in any anything you're trying to teach someone, a student is seems much more open and willing to try something or test it. Or, you know, if you just say, if, if Jen says send a text to the friend, even though a second ago I was so fearful, I'd probably do it, right? Because Jen says it's it's good or it's helpful. I'm curious when you work with adults, what that, what that response is. If, you know, if Jen says this is actually helpful, this approach is actually helpful, how do adults respond or, or professionals? I mean, you do workshops, right, with professionals, with lawyers, with like within organizations. How does that go? And, and what are they responsive to? 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, the data is coming out more and more, Hannah, especially since COVID of the isolation and the loneliness and the mental health epidemic. And the role of the workplace is changing. The dynamic is changing. And you just need to look at data from McKenzie or Deloitte or um, Bain and how the workforce of tomorrow is going to be very, very different from the workforce from today, right? So that's understood. So when you're working with adults, there's always a certain percentage that knows that and gets it and knows it's a priority. And then you have a percentage of people that know that or that will have the mindset like, this it's never done this way. This is crazy. And I don't, I don't think this is necessary. However, less and less, right? Um, if you have an organization that buys in to do this training and we work with people, they'll get it. They'll get it and they'll see it and they'll be like, wow, okay, yeah, you're right. Um, and, and what do we do to do that? Uh, we basically dive into this gap. We dive into this awkward zone that we talk about. And, you know, when you assess people and you will, you will always see this gap and people will say, yeah, I, I, I relate to that. I don't know what to do when someone in my office is crying or I don't know if it's my job to step in. Um, we will assess them. Um, and what we do in this awkward zone, Hannah, is we basically put out their four buckets or four personality types. It's not even personality types, behavior buckets, we'll call them, that we will all fall into one time or another. So again, this isn't like a Myers-Briggs. It's not anything like that. It's their, their behaviors, um, mindsets that can be changed. So think of it this way. Um, on the first level are two barrier or behavior buckets that will stop us from reaching out in the first place. All right. So if you know of someone that's struggling and you haven't reached out to them, it will be because one of two behavior buckets. The first bucket we'll call the doubter. The doubter basically wants to help, but just allows those fear, awkwardness, and doubt to get in the way. Um, I'm not sure they want to hear from me. Um, I don't think it's the right time. Um, I, I, I just don't know what to say. So all of these fears, awkwardness, and doubts stop them from doing anything and they don't reach out. Okay. That's a doubter. Or you would be a deflector. A deflector is basically, you know, think of water going off a Teflon pan, right? Like I'm not going there. Like, all right. It's uh, in, in the corporate world, you have a lot of deflecting. Um, it's not my business to step in, not my place. Um, someone else can do this better and we'll handle it. Uh, or you have people that are very burnt out, like, I can't take that on right now. I don't have time, right? So let's just call it for what it is. Are we deflecting or are we doubting? Not saying one is right, wrong, good, bad. We all do them. We'll all do them at different times. The goal is to normalize the language to say, I'm deflecting. All right. I don't have to fix the problem, but I do have to acknowledge it. Um, so that's that level. The next level is when you're confronted with someone where you literally, you're responding barriers. So it's your face-to-face in the supermarket or in the elevator, um, or you have to have a meeting with the person. And, you know, what actions do we do that mess up people feeling seen and cared for? On the one hand, we have the fixer. And the fixer is, I'm going to cheer you up. You have to try what I tried. Um, you know giving advice of any kind, like just jumping in and trying to fix the situation, which is oh, not usually helpful unless the person asks for it. On the other hand, you have the avoider who will basically not bring it up at all. You'll, that person you'll run into and you'll talk about the weather, you'll talk about the, you know, activities your children are doing, but you will not address the source of pain. You will not address the diagnosis. You'll not address the name of the person who died. Um, you'll just leave that elephant in the room. So when we work with organizations or students on our most fundamental training, we dive into this awkward zone. It's called our awkward zone workshop. We take their assessments and we have them go break out into session groups and say, what's tripping you up? Where, where are you? What are you doing? And then within each of those barriers, there are skills, tools, and strategies that can be pl- applied against it so that you can bridge that gap 
um, and know that you don't have to be stuck not knowing what to say and do um, when you know someone's struggling. So that's really our most fundamental training that we do. And any adult type will relate to it because it's something we all have to confront all the time. I think, I mean, this is, again, I, I don't know why this conversation isn't happening more often about moving, moving towards someone, not leaving it up to someone else, getting, you know, involved with, with people at a, at a human level. And so it, it begs the question, just as you're describing all of this, do you feel like as a society, we're moving in a positive or a negative direction with all of these conversations, whether it's mental health, support, like if you took a macro view of our country, what what direction are we are we headed in and what can what can individual people do to help us you know move move in the positive direction well i the answer is yes and both <laughs> uh you know i do think there is a lot more focus on mental health and addressing this loneliness and isolation and anxiety and depression right like there is a lot more focus on it however there was a lot of things that happened to create that to begin with. And, and make no mistake, that was happening far before COVID happened. COVID just put it on steroids, right? And so, sure, there are all of these areas, you know, there's going to be more funding put towards it. There's, um, you know, really colleges, workplaces are recognizing we need to deal with it. Um, however, we have to be having more conversations to normalize it. And we also need to fundamentally get out of our siloed worlds and really just start coming to the table to address where is change really happening. And yeah, I think yeah, like Harvard Business just recently, it was April that put that article out, stop framing wellness around self-care. It's just not wellness. And so it's almost taking a little bit of time for some of this to catch up. The way I look at it is, you know, back two, three decades ago, people recognized we need to pay more attention to our emotions, right? And that was all really good. We do really need to pay attention to our emotions. And so the last couple decades has been this huge focus on emotional intelligence, emotional training, and self-care, right? None of that is bad. It was something we needed to do. But the pendulum has swung a little too far that way at the cost of our social interactions and our social relationships. We're so good at looking inward now that we don't know how to go outward, right? So we've, we're, we're constantly in our heads. And if you add what's happened to um, all of us with the pandemic and isolation, um, just by nature of the social isolation and the, um, you know, being isolated in their homes and remote learning. Um, you've taken children with screens, adults with screens, and given them permission now to even isolate even more. And if you look at the steps, what happens is if you, if you're socially isolated, you just, you're just focused on yourself. You only need to take care of yourself. You can ignore any other thoughts or opinions you be, tend to really only want to do what you want to do. And therefore, relationships become awkward. And ultimately, people and re relationships become a bother because it's interrupting this own way of living that you've created. And so it's that is what we're fighting against right now. So some of it is societal. Some of it is, you know, post-pandemic. Um, but if we're not intentional about changing this path, it's not going to get better because, you know, even Dr. Arthur Evans from the American Psychological Association says social connectedness is number the number one way to get through the pandemic because of our body's wiring between oxytocin and cortisol. Like we know that's what we need. Um, and so we have to be looking at the ways then to beef up our social intelligence over and above emotional. What would you say are some simple ways as individuals that in our in our daily circles our lives what are some ways we can move toward people into that gap mm -hmm. 100% well that's what i wrote my two books about right my latest book is called showing up 
Um, and it, that's all it is, is hundreds and hundreds of tips and tools and helping you recognize, number one, um, where am I falling in? What what barriers trip me up? And then secondly, looking at it as a collective, right? It's just a whole body collective, right? Like it's not just up to my mouth as to what I say. Um, and so we dive into using your eyes to make sure you're recognizing um, signs of someone suffering, using our ears to be much better at listening and giving specific skills and assessments as to what's tripping us up when we listen, um, using our hands to write um, messages of care and support, whether that's in diving into all the different ones, whether it's a post-it note or a text or social media or letters or emails, like all of them can be used in different ways um, to check in on someone. And the check-in is so critical. Um, using our feet to show up and using actions of showing up for the person, whether that's financially or in the hospital or um, grief support or food support. I mean, you name it. There are hundreds and hundreds of ways we can show up for each other. And there is a way that we each do it personally. It's a lifestyle. We have to think of it being something we do every day, just like you would do if you're going on a diet or if you want to, you know, get in shape. Um, obviously, our human relationships are one of the most critical aspects in life. So we should be intentional about how we do that every day. So it is, it's a mindset every day that you have to get into. Like you're going to be looking for people now instead of just living your life in your own head. So yeah, hundreds and hundreds of tips and tools in the book showing up. I love how what you're saying is not isolated to just face-to-face -face or in-person interaction. And, you know, me being a native digital, I see my friend group and all, like we operate, we're, <laughs> we're operating through, we might do an Instagram story or TikTok story that's talking about, oh my gosh, I just had a, a terrible day and someone might DM us encouragement or whatever. So sometimes this moving toward people is happening in ways that to, you know, my parents, for example, is completely foreign. But I love what you're talking about is like these concepts of moving towards someone, moving into that gap, building community can can look so many different ways. They can they can be in so many different spaces. They don't have to be you sitting in person in, you know, a kumbaya circle around a fire, you know, they, they, they can be, but they can also be these little moments like a text or a DM or, um, heck, I've seen people moving toward each other, students on Discord. They're on a Discord server and, and, and supporting each other or on Geneva. There's a, a wonderful platform. This may be of interest as you're talking to students. Um, it's called The Conversationalist. And it's a platform founded by a Gen Zer. She hosts a um, a point of view Gen Z talk show. It's the first talk show for Gen Zers, where they come on and discuss literally everything from politics to social behaviors to you know economics. They literally nothing is off the table. But the the platform itself that's hosted on Geneva, the Conversationalist, there's just a bunch of Gen Zers like doing life together, like talking about issues, whether it's, you know, a lot of the conversations end up being, you know, about politics or corporate moves that are happening, whatever the case might be. But then there's other channels where people connect offline and say, you know, I, we met on Geneva, we barely know each other, but we want to support each other through through life, through starting our own businesses or whatever the case might be. And it's just so encouraging to me to see my generation saying, there's a new frontier to pave but the same human principles that you're talking about, the same need for connection will always be there. It's part of being human. And we just have to find new ways to adapt to how we give each other that support. Mm -hmm. So good. It, it, everything you said is so right. You know, I, I love going on college campuses. I love Gen Z. I think Gen Z is the generation of big hearts. And I think Gen Z is also the generation of innovation. And so when I talked to college students, I said, the only thing getting in your way is understanding how to connect better because you, you unfortunately are at the back end of a trend that has caused isolation, loneliness, and disconnection. And what you just have to understand is what the reasons behind that and that there are reasons behind it and intentionally focus on things and on every day, focusing on others and not just yourself. And, and getting better at that and 
you know, what you said when you started that was so true about it. It doesn't take face to face. It it starts with the desire to want to show someone you care for them. And I'll tell you, the research study that we did, Hannah, was, was supposed to be in person. It was supposed to be um, after the pandemic was over, but we needed to get it done. And I was asked to do it remotely with people that didn't turn their screens on. All right. So imagine when the first sessions, I almost went back and said, I don't think I can do this. I can't, I can't even see them. How can I teach care when I can't even see them? Um, but I'll tell you what, we did it. We did it. And I'll tell you a story. There was a one child the whole time. Um, and he had a, just a D on his screen. It was Google Meets and all I saw was a D and I knew his name. And I'll say Devin, that wasn't his real name. And I would just encourage Devin to participate even in the chat function or even just to talk if he didn't want to put his camera on. And ultimately, Devin didn't want to put his camera on because he didn't want people to see where he was living, right? And and when we're dealing with remote work or things like that, this is going to happen. Um, but yet, I could make sure every day that Devin knew that I saw him, that I cared about him, that I appreciated anything that he contributed to the conversation. And so in every session, I would include staff because when we're dealing with human suffering, there the lines are blurred between, you know, hierarchy. Everybody should just be caring for each other. And when students could hear about what staff were dealing with and staff were dealing, hurrying about what students were dealing with, it opened up this floodgate of, of care. Um, and so the program we ended up doing completely different, but also in the same principles. And we did it. We did it. And at the very end, Devin, who never turned his camera on, I said, Devin, I said, okay, this is the last session. And, and quite honestly, like you get emotional because I was with these children for 12 sessions and, um, you know, I was saying goodbye to them and I'm like, Devin, can I just see your face? I'm like, can you just turn your camera on? So at least we can say goodbye. And, um, he turned his camera on and he did. And honestly, it was, it was like, okay, it can, it can be done no matter where you are, no matter what circumstances you are you know, put in front of you. If you, if your intention is to show someone and make sure they feel seen, cared for, and valued, it doesn't matter where you are to do that. And that's the power of it. And that's why it's so important. We know how. That's a perfect closing note. This has been such an amazing conversation, Jen. I, I cannot wait to support your work in every way possible. Um, and and I'll walk away from this conversation thinking about like who are the people who feel unseen by me at least in in my life and send them a text and and see how I can support them. I this this has just been so so mind opening and also I love how simple it is. So thank you. Thank you for that. And you're you're welcome back anytime, please let me know how I can support you in any way possible. Oh, it's been great talking to you and you're just amazing. Love all the work you're doing. We'll stay in touch for sure. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.